open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We started something two weeks ago, which I really only planned to do one Sunday on, and I got about 10 minutes into it and realized that wasn't going to happen. And now I realize we're not going to finish it today. This is Communion Sunday, so we'll end a little earlier. And it's because, and it fits in. I really, and I shared with you two weeks ago that the, really the direction I sense God going with us for this year, uh, as we had a direction for last year, which was Ephesians 4, is, is an adjustment. My mother and my father, um, for different reasons, spent much of their lives in the office of a chiropractor. My father, I know why, because when, he, when I was about five years old, he was sitting on the end of his bed putting his shoes on, and I decided to butt his back with my head, just being playful, and it knocked his back out of joint, and so he spent years going to chiropractors, and the point is this, what they would do is make an adjustment to the alignment of his spine, and because when it was out of alignment, the muscles and things that were, that were to hang off of the, be connected to the, to the ribs and the, and the joints, were not aligned correctly, and it created strain. And if there's strain, the doctors will tell you, and we have a doctor here this morning who can tell you, that if something gets out, if you injure one, one of your limbs, there's now a danger to the other limb because what you tend to do is compensate, is that right? You compensate for the injury to this limb, and so very often it throws the other side out of whack. And the point is that if things are not aligned correctly in your body, uh, it throws everything else out of, out of, out of its proper, proper place and creates a strain. And a really sense that what God, by the Spirit, wants to do in us, because He's preparing us. He's preparing us for our destiny and our purpose. He's preparing us for whatever it is to come. We've talked about that in the past. And the, one of, the way He's preparing us is to realign us, make adjustments within us. There are things in all of us that are not right, that need to be made right. And I said, God, well, I could make a list of these things and begin to preach them. He says, no, you get the alignment right, and they'll fall into place. And the alignment starts with who he is, who Jesus is in your life. So that's really going to be the theme for this year. But I really sense this verse that we're going to read going off in me. So I went back and began to look at it, and then we started to talk about it last week. And I really see how it's a preparation for what God wants to talk to us about this year. So 1 John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 18, and then we're going to go somewhere else. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That means sin is a matter of habitually or is on purpose. But he who has been born of God keeps himself. Some translations say guards himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. Notice you keep yourself and the wicked one does not touch you. doesn't say if you just live your life any way you want that he won't touch you. It's if you keep yourself, you guard yourself, he will not touch you. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Last time we talked about that. In case you haven't read your newspaper or turned on TV lately, the world's not getting better, it's getting worse. Much worse. There's unrest all over the world. Nobody knows what they're doing. And what we're seeing in the Middle East, it would not surprise me to see closer to us. We're already seeing strains in, in some governments, in some of the state governments, where the, the, the people don't like what the governor decides. And so there's, there's just people, I mean, I've never seen before in my life representatives of government sworn to attend sessions of the legislature decide they don't want to show up because they don't want to form a quorum. 
the signs are beginning in the United States. And it's not surprising because John, by the Spirit of God, says the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. That's Satan. The, the Bible tells us that he is the God of this world. 1 John 4, 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 4. He's the God of this world. And if he's the God of this world, he's the one that's in control of the things that are going on in the world. But we were, the Bible says in, first, in Colossians 1.13, that when you come to Christ, you're delivered from the domain of darkness. We're not under his domain when you're a Christian. You're no longer under his authority. You know, we physically live in his, in his domain, but who you really are, your spirit person on the inside, no longer is under his domain. We've been transferred, that verse goes on to say, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So we are members of the kingdom of God that are on assignment here in a world that's under the sway, under the, uh, under the control of the evil one for a period of time. And that's our assignment. That's why we're here. So it isn't, shouldn't be shocking. Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. So why are we shocked when trouble comes along? Jesus said it will come. But he goes on to say, fear not, for I have overcome the world. Overcoming what's going on is through him and staying close to him. And that's what we're going to focus on this year. So notice he says that we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We, that's, by the way, it's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We know that it says he's the God of this world. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we might know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. So what we're going to be looking at this year, at least through most of this year, is knowing him. Well, I know him. Yeah, but we're going to look at knowing him at a much deeper and more intimate and powerful level. That's where God's taking us. So that's what he's talking about here. I've written this letter so that you might know him in a much deeper way. So in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of what's going on, you might know him. And in the midst of darkness, that's when you really do need to know him. Ever notice little kids and they're out in the mall, you know, and, and they're, they're with their parents and lots of people around and they know where mom and dad is. They'll feel free sometimes to wander around and run off over here, but all of a sudden something goes wrong and they realize they're out there alone. They want to know where dad is. It's important in this day and age to know where dad is, to know where your Lord is, and to know him. It's going to make all the difference in your life. The true God and eternal life. And then it ends with this verse, which to my recollection isn't even addressed anywhere else in this letter. But he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Now, the way my mind works is, what's that got to do with everything else he said? We know this, that it's inspired by the Spirit of God, so it must be part of what he's saying. What he's saying at the end of this letter is that it is important that and the reason this letter was written is that you might know him in the middle of the world that's under the sway of the evil one that we would know who the true Christ is, who the true Lord is, and we would know him so that even in the midst of darkness we know where he is and what he's doing. And he ends that by saying, keep yourself 
from idols. And I looked at that, because that's the verse that went off in me, saying, what does that have to do with what he's talking about? Another verse that really went off in me, which is in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Don't turn there now. We're going to get there before we're finished our study. Where the Apostle Paul says, flee from idols. Flee from idols. So we started talking last week about fleeing from idols and why that's so important. So turn with me now to Exodus chapter 20. We're still reviewing. This is what we talked about last time. Exodus 20 follows Exodus 19 where there is a scene that children of Israel have been supernaturally delivered from their bondage in Egypt. God's will is to take them to the promised land, which is in Canaan land, which is Palestine, what is now Palestine or Israel. But he brings them about three months out into the wilderness, which is the Sinai Peninsula, which is Saudi Arabia today. Saudi Arabia today. And he brings them down to the southern part of it to a mount called Mount Horeb. And in chapter 19 of Exodus, we see God come speak, call Moses up on the mountain and say, I want you to take the next three days and have the people consecrate themselves, wash their clothes, get the sin out of their lives, prepare themselves, and on the third day, it's a significant date, on the third day, bring them to the base of this mountain because I'm going to come down on this mountain and I want to reveal myself to them. And there's a verse in there where Moses, I love this verse, it says, Moses went to the people to prepare them to come out and meet their God. God wants to have an encounter with them where they don't just know who he is because they've heard of him from Moses, but they see him. Over in Deuteronomy it says God could not appear to them in his physical form because he knew that they would make an image of him. So he appeared to them in a cloud so they could not form an image of him. And he wanted to demonstrate for them his power and his majesty and his glory so that they would worship him and reverence him and follow him. And that they would know that Moses was the one God had ordained to lead them so that they would do what God said to them to do through Moses. So they now came out to the base of this mountain. God comes down on the top of this mountain in fire and earthquakes and the mountain trembles and all the ground around them and the people run away in fear. And Moses goes to them and they say to Moses, this is, this is more than we can handle. God's more than we can handle. So what we want to do is you go talk to God and tell us what he says. But you see, what happens in the presence of God is everything gets revealed because he is perfect light. God is truth. It is impossible to stand in his physical presence and hide anything because he is truth. Interesting comparison. Here you've got Moses who goes up on the mountain. And Moses isn't perfect. And he wants to get closer to God and the people of Israel, who either also aren't perfect, want to get as far away from God. This is a little side note. What's the difference? The difference is Moses wanted whatever was wrong in his life exposed so he could get rid of it. The children of Israel were afraid to have what was going on in their lives exposed because they wanted to hold on to it. 
Which one are you? Because it will come important in the days that are ahead. It will become important in the days that are ahead. God calls Moses back up on the mountain, and that's where chapter 20 begins. He gives to him and writes with his own finger in a tablet of stone what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, we all know they're called the Ten Commandments, but our brain has the ability to translate things. We say commandment, but what we mean is suggestion. We say commandment, but in our mind, when we translate it into what we have to do with it, we, we read it as the ten things God wants us to do. But a commandment has only two, oper- two responses. There's obedience or disobedience. There's no middle ground. Ask Saul. King Saul, he partially obeyed what God said And God called it rebellion. God issues to Moses and writes with his own finger in the stone these commandments. And notice the first one. That's the one we're talking about. And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's talk for a moment about that, what he says there. Understand this. There are no other gods. There's a verse in Isaiah, I've forgotten where it is, where in essence it says, God says, I've looked around, I don't see anybody else up here. He is the true and living God. In Isaiah, where God was having to deal with this issue of idolatry, God points out to them that every other God you have has eyes, because they were images of beings, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear you. They have hands, but they can't help you. Why? Because you made them. They're made out of inanimate objects. Now notice, the key to understanding idolatry is this next verse. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved, or King James says, graven image. Any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down nor serve them. We'll talk about that later. But the first thing he says is, you shall not make for yourself a carved or graven image. And that's the key to understanding idolatry. It's a God you make for yourselves. Remember last year we were studying... Uh, we were studying, uh, I forgot what it was, it was sin, I think it was. And we talked about Lucifer and the, 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 the root of sin, the core of sin goes back, not into Genesis, 
That's just acting out something that's already been done. It goes into Isaiah and Ezekiel where we see into heaven where, where Lucifer, who was the most beautiful angel God made, became lifted up in pride because he began to look at his own beauty and began to think he'd made himself. And he did that because he began to look at himself and take his eyes off of God. And we talked about that's the open door to sin is when you take your eyes off of God and begin to look at yourself. And that's the device that Satan uses to begin to get... You notice, you don't fall into sin. You walk into it through a series of steps that you take. And the first step towards it is you take your eyes off of God and you begin to look at yourself, either good or bad, and saying, whoa, God and I are doing a pretty good job. And after a while, it's not God and I, it's I'm doing a pretty good job. But the other side of that, which is the same thing, is, oh, what a terrible person I am. I can't ever do anything right. I'm a mess. I'm never going to amount to anything. I, who's that focused on? That's focused on... The devil doesn't care why you look at yourself. doesn't matter why you're looking at yourself. Because when you're looking at yourself, you're no longer looking at God. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to, because there's a great cloud of witnesses going on before us, that we are to lay aside the sin and the weights and the sin that so easily besets us. And how do we do that? The next verse tells you how. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We try to deal with sin by correcting, by looking at the sin. And that's still looking at yourself. And so God says here, here's the crucial thing again. Because notice what happened in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. The temptation to Eve was the same temptation. It was to get her to look at herself. Because the last verse of chapter 2 in Genesis says they were both naked and unashamed. In other words, they had no clothes on, but they weren't aware they were naked because they were totally caught up in who God was. And the moment they sinned, they had to hide themselves because they became aware of their nakedness. Self-awareness is the beginning of sin to a Christian. Now, the things we need to understand about ourselves, I'm not talking about that. It's the focus on yourself. And notice it's the same thing here. You shall not make for yourself an image that you're God. Because what makes it an idol is you made it yourself. Anything you make you have dominion over. The reason He is the God of this earth, I mean, the reason God is, is God is because He made it. The reason He owns the earth, the Bible says He owns the earth and the cattle on a thousand hills, the reason He owns you is because He made you. That's where His right of ownership comes is He made you. So anything you make, you own. Anything you make, you're the God over that thing because its source of what it is came from you. And you see that? That's why over here, if you look over in, uh, later on in this chapter, over in verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I talk with you from heaven. Do not make anything 
to be with you gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourself. An altar of the earth, now look at verse 22. An altar of the earth shall be made for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. If you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn or cut stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Why could they worship God on dirt? Because who made the dirt? God. They could use stone as an altar, as something on which to worship God until they cut the stone. Because once they cut it, they changed its form. And it became something that was their design, no longer God's. Can you see that? All right. And that's the essence of what idolatry is. And the result is it opens up all kinds of things other than these little statues that I hope you don't have on your dashboard. Because <laughs> somebody made that statue. Well, it's harmless. Well, why do you have it? Because if it has meaning to you, then you're drawing something from something man-made to supply a need you have. Notice God said, I will be your God. That means more than something I worship on Sunday morning. It means my source of everything. My source of protection, my source of direction, my source of well-being, my source of my identity. And anything I put in my life that I draw on for one of those sources other than God, is an idol. We're going to look maybe next week, maybe the week after, at a story where the children of Israel come into the promised land and the first city they run into is Jericho. And Joshua tells them, once this city has fallen into our hands, everything in it belongs to God. And anything you take for yourself, you profane. And you'll, we'll see that they didn't just profane the person that took it, it profaned the whole nation. And the Achan took something, and he hid it in his tent, and God exposed what he hid. We'll talk about that story later on. So what we're going to talk about today are idols, not the obvious idols, which are statues and, you know, whatever you may have. Or, but, but, there are, but what we're going to talk about what Achan had were hidden idols. There are other types of idols. We're going to begin to talk about those today. All right. Let's see. Which one should we start with? Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. There is one we're going to talk about at the end that is maybe the most important one, and it's also the most subtle and therefore the most hidden one. And it's one in, undoubtedly we have all had in our lives and may still have today. Matthew chapter 6. This is, of course, in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It is a sermon, but Jesus is teaching his disciples here. He's not teaching everybody else. Let's look at um, verse 16. Excuse me, verse, um, verse 16, 19. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves neither break in nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that, verse 21, is the key to understanding this section of Scripture. He's not talking about whether you have money or don't have money. He's talking about what your treasure is. Because there are people that have lots of money, but it's not their treasure. God's their treasure. There are people that don't have very much at all, but what they do have is their treasure. And so what he's saying is, don't invest your heart and your treasure and your trust in the things of this earth, because they won't last you very long. And the reason is, is because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Understand this about God, because he goes on in Exodus 20 to say that he is a jealous God. Jealousy implies a relationship. It says it also in James chapter 4. It's a rela- you know God doesn't need your money. I hope you understand that. I mean, his streets are paved. He used gold for paving material. When he creates the new Jerusalem, his doors are solid pearls and they're, I think, 200 feet high. I mean, he's doing okay. The one thing God needs that you have that he cannot create himself is your heart, your love, your devotion to him. And the one thing he desires and longs for more than anything else is your heart devoted to him. Remember somebody came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't, without hesitation, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. And the second commandment is like unto that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why, see, idolatry interferes. It's putting something else, someone else, in a place that belongs in your heart only to God. But see, we can come on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and with all sincerity worship God and love Him and lift our voices and our hands and tell God with tears coming down our eyes and tell Him how much we love Him and be sincere and mean it and yet walk out there and allow all kinds of things to pull our hearts away from Him and to take that place in our hearts because there's a devil out there who does not want your heart devoted to God. He wants to take your heart away from God. He doesn't care about you. He wants to spite God. And you're the only thing of value in this earth that's of value to God that that the devil wants to get his hands on. And that's why. And the key here to understanding these verses is where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So the reason God's telling us here through Jesus is to not make things of this life, and we're going to see it's not just material things, but for this discussion it is. Not make those our treasure is because then our heart is given to them. And that's the key to understanding this. All right. Now he's got this strange discussion in here about our eyes and light. Verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil or bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now look at this statement. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? How can light in you be darkness? 
Because either you're seeing or you're not seeing. Well, I, you know, these verses used to trouble me because I wonder, what are they doing in here? I don't understand them. And this is how I've learned to, to, to gain the understanding that I have. I don't accept that they don't belong there. It just means I don't understand something. So I'll go to the Holy Spirit, who's the author. Isn't it neat you got the author of the book living inside of you? And say, what do these mean? Open my eyes to see what they mean. And I began to read them. I began to read them in the context of what Jesus was talking about. And then I, this word, evil, your eye is evil. So I looked that word up, and it's a Greek word, paneros, which also means diseased. Doesn't mean evil. It's another word that means evil in the sense it's bad at its nature. But this word, paneros, means d- diseased. That began to make a little more sense. Because he's saying if your eye, he's talking about your natural eye, if it is diseased, for instance, if it was, we were with somebody down there, friends of ours, and they were saying, you know, I'm having trouble driving at night now. The light just does funny things. So we went to the eye doctor and he says, you got cataracts. Because what happens with cataracts is a film that forms in the front of your eye. So light is coming in. He was seeing the headlights, but when they came in through that right eye, the cataract was causing the light to be diffused before it went into the retina. So light was striking the back of the eye, but it wasn't accurate light. Because the cloudiness or the cataract interfered with the flow of that light so that it wasn't accurate when it got to the optic nerves in the back of the retina. That's what this is meaning. So that's why it says you can have light going in your eye that's darkness because it's just as if you were not able to see even though light's coming in because I can't make out clearly what I'm seeing. I had a brother who had 2,400 vision. I mean, until the... They got the plastic lenses. He literally had Coke bottle type lenses. You take those off, he, was, he couldn't see. There was light getting in there. He saw light, but he couldn't walk around without his glasses on because that light that got in was worthless to him. It was as if it were darkness. You see that? Now, he's not just having an anatomy discussion here. There's a purpose for that. But that's the principle that he's laying out. So he's saying your eye is the avenue by which Light comes into your body. If there's a disease, if your eye is diseased in some way, the light that's getting in cannot be relied upon. It's not accurate, even though it's light. It's as if it's darkness to you. All right? Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or riches. You cannot. You can think you can, but God said you can't serve. He doesn't say you can't have them both. He says you can't serve them both. What do you serve with? Your heart. You serve someone with your heart. <laughs> There's the old story of the, of the young boy who came to his church, sitting down next to his father, and, he, and they, they sit down, and he stands up. And the father says, son, I want you to sit down. The son just keeps standing up. 
He said, son, I want you to sit down. Just keep standing up. Son, sit down. Just keep standing up. So he reaches his big hand over. He says, son, I said, sit down. And he pushes him down. He's down in the seat. Little boy looks up at his father and says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. I'm serving you on the outside, but the inside, I'm serving money, things, whatever it is. So we're sitting there saying, well, I don't do that. I mean, I love God. I just don't serve God. I, you know, worship Him with tithes and offerings. Well, let's just keep reading on. That's good. We should do that. We're supposed to do that. All the same discussion here. Because it starts with the word, verse 25, starts with the word, therefore. I've taught in school of ministry. It's one of the things I, because as I'm meditating on this today, I want to take the time at period, different times to teach you how to read your Bible. Other people say, how do you get that out of the Bible? Because I look for it in the Bible. I don't just read it. I study it. Little words mean things. Like my... M-Y means something belongs to me. That's my wife. That means she's not yours. <laughs> now, it's important to understand. And she'll take all the things. See, sometimes, you know, a woman comes and she'll grab, it's my husband. She may be your pastor, but she's my, he's my husband. All right? That means something. When God says, I am your God and you are my people, that little word, my, is very powerful. The word therefore is a conjunction. It connects what he's about to say with what just came before it. And it's not just a connection like they're related. He tells you how they're related. Because the word therefore means that what's about to follow is based on what was just said. So what was just said is the foundation for what I'm about to say. So this is the same subject and what he's been talking about, about, the, about, about the, your heart, your heart, uh, your, where your treasure is, your heart is. And then the discussion about the eye. And, you know, the eye, if it's, if it's diseased, the light that's coming in is not reliable. But if your eye is whole or healthy, then the light that's coming in is pure. All that's talking about the same subject. Then he says, now, therefore, you know, understand this. You cannot serve God with your heart and things, anything else. Because you can only serve one. Only one can be in the first place. So if anything else is in that first place, then God's not. And now he's going to give us the practical way to measure it, whether we're doing this, and how to live out that commitment to put him first. That's what's in the word, therefore. All right. You may want to pick your toes up. <laughs> Pull them in. But this is where we are. Therefore I say unto you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on it. What your hair is going to look like today. Whether I wore the right tie. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He takes care of them. He is their source. He provides what they need. And they don't worry. 
Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit or one foot to your stature? So why are you worrying about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't even toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which is today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. That's the key word. Because remember where your treasure is, your heart is. What you're seeking after is what your heart goes after. The Gentiles are referring to the people that have no covenant with God. God has not promised to be their God. He has not promised to be their source. But He had to Israel. And then as we go on and study the New Testament, because we are the sons of Israel, He has to us. He's saying, I understand that the Gentiles seek after these things because they're their own source. They can't turn to a God who's made a covenant with them to provide their every needs. They can't turn to Him because they don't have a covenant to them. Of course they've got to seek after these things themselves. They have to be their own source because they don't have God as their source. But you do! But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in all these things that you need will be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Sufficient today is its own trouble. In other words, deal with every day. What's he talking about here? How's this got to do with idols? He's talking about this. He's saying when you worry about the things of this world, whether you're going to have a job, and if you have a job, whether it's going to be enough. When you worry about whether your needs are going to be taken care of, when you worry about all those things, because what worry is, is worry is saying, I am my own source. Worry says, I don't trust that God's going to take care of me. I've got to figure out how this is going to happen. We're talking about idols. And idols, anything you make yourself that you put in a place that belongs to God as your source. And here we're talking about material things. See, it's not just I love cars and I want to have more cars than anybody else. That's obviously idolatry. But you can be committing idolatry over things when you don't have anything. Because it's what your heart's going after. And what Jesus is saying is when you're worried about how your needs are going to be taken care of, You've put those needs above God in your heart. And what you've really done is put yourself above God because you're saying, I'm responsible. Now, obviously, you have to have a job. You, you provide for your family. But you're simply doing the work. God is the source. Amen. God is your source. And if God's not your source, then whatever else is is an idol because it's something you've made and put in a place that belongs to him. 
So it's not the things you're having the things you're not having the things. It's what place they have in your heart. And you can have them in a place in your heart that's not, again, there's people that love cars and they'll have fancy cars and they, you know, they just worship their clothes. I'm not talking about that. That's obvious. I'm talking about it can have a very subtle place in your heart. We're talking about hidden idols, a sudden place in your heart that you think is understandable because, of course, it's natural to worry about these things. If you don't have these things, what's going to happen? It may be natural for the Gentiles, but it's idolatry for a Christian. And as I was praying about this yesterday, I know I said it two weeks ago, it came off in me again. There's some of you right now in this room, and I'm not thinking of anybody, I don't even know who it is, that is, are struggling financially right now. Some of you have been trying to get a job, you've been believing God, you've been doing all things you know, and nothing is working. And this is why it's not working. Because you're looking for a job to be your source. And God's not going to put an idol in your hands. God's not going to put an idol in your hands. All you've got to do is make the adjustment, God, you're my source, and I don't care what means you use. And you watch the difference it makes. God can provide a job for you before you leave this place today. But there's some of you today, the Lord spoke this to me, is this is why you're afraid you're afraid you're not going to have enough. You're afraid you're going to lose your house. You're afraid of all these things. And that fear is a worship that those things are what I need in order to survive. No, you need him. Because I can tell you, I've worked with people that have more than most of you will ever see in your life. More money, more cars. I've worked with some of these people, and they are some of the most hurting, lonely fearful people you've ever, I've ever met in my life. When I resigned that law firm in Boston, a large law firm, to go to Bible school, I had some partners with lots of money come into my office with tears in their eyes saying, you have more courage than I do. I'm afraid to do what you're doing. Now, they weren't going to go to Bible school. In other words, they were captured and bound up by the things that they had. They needed those things. It's not the things themselves. It's the place in your heart. And the sign of it is when you're worrying. Because what worry is, is worry is saying, I don't believe God's going to come through for me. So I've got to take it into my own hands. Well, most likely your own hands got you where you are. You have to come to the place where you're out on the, that limb and you're sawing the limb off on the tree side of it. So that's what tithing does. Tithing, when you first start, doesn't make sense to me. I remember looking at that, and I've told you the story before because I was making a lot of money then, and that first tithe check was more than I had given in a long time put together, let alone a one check. But I knew that by doing it, I was obeying God, and therefore I was putting him first in my finances because I was doing what he said to do, not what I wanted to do. It looked like it made no sense at all. 
it looked like it was going to be disaster. I've had God tell me one time when we were struggling to take my whole paycheck. I'm not saying he teach, I knew he told me to do You better know God told you. Let me give you my whole paycheck away. Within one week, I was promoted. Not only that, everything I gave away was given back and multiplied unto me. I was promoted, moved into the best office in the firm in one week. God will put tests in your path to test where he is in your heart. Seek ye first. See, what this whole story in here is about is what your heart is seeking. And so what the eyeball is to your physical body in terms of letting light in, your heart is to your spirit man. And if your heart is not seeking God first, although things may be getting into your heart, they're not accurate. They're like having glaucoma or like, like, like having cataracts. The light that comes in that you see is off kilter. Just like your eye, if it's not clear, you're seeing things, but you can't trust what you're seeing. This whole discussion is about your heart and what your heart's seeking after. And anything your heart seeks after, anything you worry about, is something you've put in your heart above God. What do we do? You just make an adjustment. You get before him and just repent and say, God, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was doing this, or maybe I did know I was doing this. I didn't think I could help it. Help me. I want you to be first in my life. I want to give this to you, and you give it to him in your heart. You may have to do that over and over for a while, but just keep at it. And when you'll know when you've done it because there's a peace you settle into. Because now the limb that you were out on and sawed off, he's holding up, and you don't have to hold it up anymore. I've been at that place financially where I was, there was only one way was gonna, we were going to survive is God had to come through, and it was the most peaceful place I've ever been because now I can't do anything. He comes through where we fall, and guess what? I'm still here. We didn't fall. But when we try to add ourselves to what God's doing, we get in his way because he must be first. My little children flee from idols.